because we all swear and I won. <laughs> Is your microphone <laughs> even says, on yet? Yeah, we're good. We're good. I won again. Hello, Candice Lamb. Hello, Amanda Wilson. Let's not tell everyone who's here yet. Okay, we'll see if they can guess. Let's. Okay, we'll play a game. <laughs> person, random person, you're going to answer questions. Random person. <laughs> How old are you? Oh, that's going to give it away. <laughs> Okay, um, <laughs> She's how like, so long donuts. have you been at the gym for? Have you been a member for? 12 months. Mm-hmm. I think it's already – she's got a very unique voice. Yeah, I feel like everyone knows already. I think two words and, you know, yeah, but keep going. Okay. Um, 12 months. Has it been 12 months? Yeah, just a bit over since I came and <sighs> had my first – hey? It has gone fast. Well, it's gone fast for me. It's probably gone very you. slow for you. Oh, sometimes. Slow pain for yeah. 12 months. <laughs> Um, what was one of your jobs? Oh, that's a fun question. Because we're going to talk about it lots. Yeah. Police Later. officer. Mm-hmm. Does many people know? Do many? Does. Does many? <laughs> do, good start. Do many people know that you were a police officer that come to the gym? I think so. Although yeah. M this morning asked what Kim and I did for a business. And I said, oh, no, we, you know, besties. But we had been police officers together. And she said, oh, I didn't know that. Which M? Who? Collins. Ah, yeah. there you go. <coughs> Does anyone get weird mm. that you're a police officer? No. No? I reckon they would secretly talk to M downstairs in the video. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to ask her. Okay, I feel like everyone knows who you are now. Okay. This is Julie. Welcome, Julie. Hello, Thank Julie. you, Mandy. Thank you, Candice. Welcome to the Contessa cast. It's very exciting. Oh, the Women of CrossFit podcast. Oh, oh no, I mess- messed it up already. Um, let's start with how old you are. I think it's very cool that you do CrossFit. I'm 68 in June. Mm-hmm. Do you forget your age when you're over like 40? Probably. I think I get a shock when I look in the mirror sometimes. Do because you? Because I think oh, my mind is still 30 or 40 and like to do some of the things I did then. But And it's hard when you go, God, I'm in my 60s and then mid-60s and getting close to 70 because that... When I was younger, it was really, really, really old. So, yeah, and I think I have to think about every day is a day less left. So, oh god, that's morbid. No, 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 it's, it's not no. in a good so, way. In a good way. I yeah. think about that now, dude. Do you? Yeah, I'm thirty-two, and I think that. Yep, one hundred percent. So that means make the most of every day, mm-hmm. not in a morbid way, but think well, I could do nothing today, which is fine. But why not do something I like doing? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. How long do you reckon you've been thinking like that for? Oh, probably um, mid-60s mm-hmm. because on my family side, uh, they all started dropping off at 72 and 73. So I was like, thinking... My time is limited <laughs> on this earth. <laughs> I hope my genes are a little bit stronger. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Um, we're going to talk about your life today because you've had of all the people I've met one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever heard like the things that you have done and been through is incredible and I feel like everyone needs to know do you think it is sometimes I do and then other times I just think well that was the road that I've walked along and um, some of the things have been traumatic and other things have been exciting and happy and it's just my life yeah And I think um, we talk about mindset a lot here at the gym with members and 
the way that we respond to things that life throws at us and choosing to not be the victim and, you know, taking the high road or whatever. And you've had so many things that have happened to you where you could have taken that victim road and your life would have ended up very differently, Mm. I think, if you did. So, um, yeah, let's let's talk about some things. Okay. Um, Tell me a little bit about your childhood. I was born in a little New South Wales town casino, which is near Lismore, which is where my mum, my dad, both sets of grandparents their parents were from so it was probably a bit inbred I guess I don't know <laughs> mum, mum was one of 13 holy dooly yeah mad Pretty catholic com- com- family back then, wasn't yeah it? it was and we moved to Newcastle when I was three and dad went to work at the BHP which was you know such a big employer and mum was a barmaid um it was I didn't realise until many years later that you know we were really poor we had a very very basic house I shared a room with my uh, older brother Um, I've only one sibling until I was 10 little two-bedroom thing and but we didn't even think about it it was just what it was yeah Yeah. Um, and uh, mum left the marriage when I was about 10 I came home one day and she wasn't there so dad was left to bring us up which was back then um, rare There was no child endowment payments or support or anything like that. And he was working three shifts in the BHP, the steelworks. And um, again, I think when we're kids, we just accept things and take it for granted. And when I became a parent, I realised how hard he must have worked to look after us because we didn't speak to our mother for about five years after that. So just you and your brother? So there's yeah. the two of you? Yeah. Yep. And how, how old was he? Is it like compared to you? Like He's three years older. Three years older. Yeah, yep. so, yeah. I don't think he ever forgave my mother. Did she, did you have contact? Like you said, you didn't speak for five years after, but did you, did you know where she went? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, don't we learn a lot as we get a bit older? And um, she fell in love with a man that was just right for her. She got pregnant to my dad when she was 16, you know, first time she'd had sex and had to get married and it was a very unhappy marriage and uh, I think the way she left, she regretted all her living years um, to come home, half the furniture gone and a note there for my dad and us kids sitting there after school. Do you remember it? Yeah, I, I remember that day and I think not talking to her was a way of punishing her um, but I did. I ended up liking Alan, the man she left for and married, and thought she just didn't have the maturity, the emotional maturity or skills to do it any other way. Wow. Yeah. That would have been a tough age for you when, like, 10. Yeah. Just, like, pre-pubescent. Yeah. Like, it, it, going through a lot of your own changes just after that. Yeah. And Dad was... Um, very kind and, and gentleman, and he was, you know, shattered. But um, w- one thing I clearly remember him doing was in our little neighbourhood, he went to a friend's mum and said, you know, Julie's going to start a period soon. Can you talk to her? Help. Help. Yeah, but he did, he asked. He couldn't do it himself because yep. that was just too difficult. And when, you know, time to wear a bra and that, he'd sort of whistle out to someone in the street, <laughs> give us a hand with his <laughs> business. But, yeah, he did a great job. That's you awesome. Know. Yeah. Especially, like you said, back then 
that would have been pretty rare for a dad to yeah, be with the kids. It was. Not the mum. Yeah. I didn't know anyone in that situation. So, and, uh, you know, he, he learnt as he went and... Mm. And then we left home, my brother and I both, when my brother turned... Well, my brother married at 18 and I left home when I was 18. So then Dad probably took a big sigh and went... Yeah, I did it. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> and back then we didn't go back home. Yeah. When you were, like kids when do you, these days. When you left, you're, you're gone. gone. That's it. <laughs> I think I, I'm pretty sure I went in and out three times. <laughs> Fairly certain. <laughs> yeah, right. And then so you left home. What did you do after that? Um, when I left school, which was at 15, I sat for the Commonwealth Bank entrance mm-hmm. job because everyone did. At 15? Yeah. yeah. And I got that much to dad's pleasure because he thought, oh, this is good, a bank job, you know. Yeah. And I stayed three months and hated it. And then I left and I washed cars. Um, he loved that. Nobody Not. <laughs> but... You know, I was just looking around Newcastle and, and I was a real beach bum and any chance I could get to go to the beach and surf and things. But um, at 17, I uh, enrolled as a nurse at what was called Stockton Mental Hospital back then. And um, it was a... Have you seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? A movie with mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson. Um, it was a very accurate portrayal of what... Um, a mental hospital was back then and they're not called mental hospitals anymore. Um, so it was pretty scary. I was still young, learning and um, thrown in the deep end with... There was criminally insane there. There was um, uh, a lot of children who had been born mentally and physically deformed and um, so there was a whole range. There were 25 different buildings which were full. So you wow. you went from one to the other as you learnt a little bit more about things. What's in full? Life. Like how how many in each building? Oh, there probably would have been fifty to sixty in each building. It was massive. Yeah, yeah really massive. And um, so you know, I saw a lot of things as a young girl that um, shocked me. And I thought I think the first year was basically you were cleaning up patients because they couldn't physically do it themselves my first day very first day I was the only one in the intake and that was scary enough and I went was taken to a ward and this was ward 25 I can even remember the number and uh, the sister in charge was like nurse ratchet in one flew over the cookies nest she was just so (laughs) scary and she had said to me first job was to clean the stools there's the laundry and I went and got a bucket and some rags and was wiping down physically the stools that people sat on. Stools is another word for shit. I thought so. Yes. As soon as you said stools, I was like, yeah. no. That's how <laughs> stupid I was. Day one. Day one. Got better. And then there was one patient who they – she was blind. She was about 15, 16 and – when they rang bells, a lot of the um, patients responded to noise. So they knew a particular bell meant food. They were severely um, mentally handicapped. And I was told to guide this young woman into the meal room because she's blind, but she knew 
shuffling along. So I picked, not what she was um, on the ground, I picked her up and they forgot to tell me not to have her facing you. Oh, God. She's a biter. <gasps> First day. So she latched on to my breast, <laughs> bit through my uniform, my bra and into the skin. Oh, my gosh. And I had to go and have a tetanus shot. First day, so it was. It was. And she went and back. Went back she oh. cleaned up turds <laughs> and got. Well, bit did you on the, actually clean up the right stools after that? <laughs> she yes. got bit on the bit on the titty and yeah. cleaned up turds. <laughs> wow, what a first day! Oh, it was, and I did think, would I front back up? But I did. It was. You were paid excellent money yeah. um, because it was a hard job. It was really a hard gig. And hey, what was excellent money back then? Oh, do you remember? No, I don't. But I could buy what I wanted. Yeah, clothes at seventeen. And, that would yeah, be pretty cool. It was yeah. and. Um, Newcastle girls are good drinkers, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and the nurses were all good drinkers too. So and I smoked back then, but only Ooh. on night duty because we did um, twelve-hour shifts, seven nights straight of twelve hours. Wow. So smoking was a good way to stay awake, and you could smoke in the wards. How long did you work there? Uh, about three years, and then um, and I'd graduated along to being in the um, in the children's um, house where they had um, Down syndrome children, and I loved that. They, they were gorgeous. They were happy, loving. Not bodied boobies. No, no. <laughs> and I used to take out a little boy called Rocky and Donna, a little Indigenous girl, and take them to Newcastle Beach. And you'd never be able to do that these days, but yeah. um, um, you know, had permission. They had no family. A lot of those children never had a visit from anyone. Which was sad but understandable because um, when, when parents would hand over a child or even a teenager or an adult, that was traumatic for them and if they went back to visit it would just keep yep. opening up their hearts and a lot of the patients didn't know who their family were. Wow. And, and yet some would come religiously every Sunday and we'd dress up their family member and take them into a room and the the child or the uh, teenager or young adult, they could have been painting on the wall. So that was really hard too. Yeah. So probably learned a lot about death there because there was a fairly high mortality rate and that was just part of nursing there. Wow. Did you keep nursing after that? No. Um, four of us left Newcastle and headed to the Gold Coast and got jobs in... Um, pubs and beach houses and, and we lived a, a grand life. Mm, I bet. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. How long was that? <laughs> How long did you do that? Uh, we did that for a couple of years, yeah. it was. And then what? Um, then I worked as a barmaid at the Prince of Wales Hotel at Nunda, which was the Wharfies pub, which was as rough a pub as you could <laughs> ever, ever get. But I was living at Hendra in a share house, so... I was getting ready to travel around Australia, so I went and um, said, you know, oh, I can pull a beer and I wanted to put a bit of cash away. My, and my first shift, a Friday afternoon, and all these really rugged, tough blokes see like a, oh, we'll target her. So, um, and the guy I was working with too, 
he turned the handle to be left-handed and I was right-handed. So they, he was doing everything he could to make me uncomfortable and I'm, you know, scoring it away in my mind. I thought, I'll pay you back at some stage. It's like, anyway, a um, couple of blokes were drinking and they were just disgusting and big drinkers, wolfies, and um, I asked for some money for one shout and he had a, one of the blokes had great delight in dropping um, in small coins the amount so that it ran all over the bar and the floor so I'd have to pick it up and I'm going, okay. And then uh, these two just kept drinking till the end of the night when it was nearly closing time and one of them vomited into his empty glass. This is how drunk he was and then started to drink it. Oh! And I thought, here's another first shift that I'll never forget. He was absolutely disgusting and I said to the, I don't know who it was, the head barman, um, oh, he's got to go and it was closing time. So they went over to the Chinese across the road then to get Chinese. But the funny thing was I opened up the next day in the public bar and these two blokes were back there at 10, 10 o'clock, and I didn't serve them. <laughs> All day? No. I just thought, <laughs> okay, you can go into the lounge and pay the higher price because I'm not serving you in here. So I had a little win. Excellent. Don't cross me. Yeah. <laughs> you would have been early 20s then? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Dennis, who became my husband, we headed off in a Land Rover and travelled around Australia and picked fruit and I worked in pubs and he did odd jobs and we ended up in Western Australia and brought a little house there in Albany and um, we stayed there for a couple of years and... Um, we'd go out bush, blow up trees, isn't this, I hate even thinking about what I did then, um, to make tree stumps because it was farming area. So we'd, we had a lease on, a, on land and so we'd fell big trees, he'd do that, and then um, load them with dynamite to blow them apart and then I would strip all the bark off them and then he'd chop them into fence posts. So we'd stay out bush with our dogs for a week and then we'd have a big load of fence posts to sell. And So we pretty well did anything yeah. to make money. And yeah. yeah. And then we came back here uh, to Brisbane and married. Yeah. yeah. How old were you then? 26, yeah. about. And then we went back to Albany and started our own business, the Cane Furniture Shop. Yeah. And we had that for two years. Yep. Then what? Then we came back to Brisbane. Um, and what did we do then? Um, I had a baby. So just a small little <laughs> a small thing. Yeah, what side? was the next thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had Paul, who's um, 41 this year. Yeah. Yeah. And, I th- and during... Um, during the time then I was either uh, house cleaning, working in restaurants, I taught um, children in swimming classes, I'd gone through a TAFE course and got my certificate, so I'd do put my hand to anything just yeah, to... Yeah, put a bit of a jack of Just to get yeah, to money, started. yeah, yep. and then... Um, and then had been harbouring this thing about being a police officer, which I had wanted to do in Newcastle, um, and uh, they, you know, there were height restrictions and, and if you had children, when I wanted to join up here, you couldn't have children. So when 
when they uh, lifted those anti-discrimination laws, I had my second son, who's 39 this year, and a couple of years after his birth, um, I joined the police service. And I was in the first squad where uh, they allowed, in inverted commas, women with children to join. Isn't that insane that that was even a thing? Oh, that, I mean, that yes. We're talking to someone that in this lifetime yeah. that yeah. was a thing. Yeah. It blows my mind. I know. It feels like that could, like that was, like that could yeah. never be a thing or maybe in the 1800s. But I know, <laughs> but that was how it was. Yeah. yeah. Not even that long ago. Yes. So women could join, but not women with children. Yes. Yeah. And um, so I was very excited to have passed. What made you want to be a, a police officer? And when did you decide? I probably decided when I started the nursing job at Stockton Hospital. Because that would have had so much, um, like, criminal history to a lot of people. Yeah. And, like, the mental illness, yes. that a lot of crime, yeah. like, you would be so interested in that. And, and I think even though that had then was a lot of years earlier... That helped me when I did oh. join because I was aware of mental illness and people who get into a rage and, you and know, how perhaps to how to it. deal yeah. with that. So I think I had an advantage in that background. Um, plus, you know, my age and I'd, I'd had children and I think that all helped. And then as years unfolded, um, the average age of a police officer joining was about... 26 or 27 because they came in with life skills as opposed to out of school Mm. and finishing school years back as a cadet and then going straight into policing without a lot of life experience so yeah yeah. so how old were your kids when you joined three and nearly five yeah very young yeah start a new career and and i had to live in at the academy at oxley for six months so that was a big call. Yeah. So just hubby with the kids? Yeah, we were sort of parting ways. Yeah. So um, uh, so Dennis and a good friend shared them through the week. Yeah. And I would come home Friday afternoon and get them and then take them to uh, rugby union and soccer on Saturday, to nippers on Sunday, and then I'd um, drive and then take them to whoever was having them on the Sunday night after dinner and then I'd drive back down to the academy about three o'clock Monday morning. How long was that for, the academy? Six months. Whoa. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I was saying to you the other day, Candice, about uh, doing well at the academy because that Mm. was a lot of sacrifice by a lot of people and I thought if I get in, I've got to do the best I can. And... um, I was I was proud I got best all rounder of That's the squad. Awesome. So that meant law, um, physical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing now. <laughs> I could do a lot physically. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, so that was great, really good. And I'd ring the kids of a Wednesday night because, and I was so worried about them and feeling guilty as women do. And they'd be like, oh, hello, how hey, you going? Yeah, 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 I've got to go. Yeah, we're good, you know, and I'd be there with tears running down my eyes. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't FaceTime them back then either? No, <laughs> it, was, it was, you One know. One call a week a, as yeah, well. Yeah, no, yeah. no um, mobile phones, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, Whereas my five-year-old has Messenger, so she can yeah, message me there now. There you go. So, yeah. And she tries to video call me while I'm at work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was very, very different. And, uh, but I think, I think they thought it was pretty cool. 
And I think the only time they really reacted in the academy phase of things was I came home on Friday afternoon and um, Friday afternoons for our squad was all PE. Uh, and, but we did um, PE every day back then, yeah. every day. We, we were fit, but Friday was, uh, um, you know, three or four hours. And the one of the instructors, PE instructors, Bill Hunter, just a man mountain, not tall, but he had won the Scottish gold medal in the Commonwealth Games for wrestling, so... Just yeah. a unit. And one Friday afternoon we did wrestling with him. Or, you know, he part, partnered you off and you had to show that you were looking at how to get out of a hold and all the rest of it. And he called me over with his Scottish accent and, like, threw me to the ground and fell on me. And he used to let his beard grow a bit scratchy for these things. And, and I'm... <laughs> trying to push him off and he's scraping his beard across my skin like bringing um prickles of blood yeah and i'm trying to think now how do i know that anyway he just said to me um look you try hard but you're fucking hopeless (laughs) but in a nice way he was quite (laughs) it was nice nice yeah hopeless but Yeah. yeah And so I came home uh, late that Friday afternoon in my, my gym shorts and T-shirt and the bruises were already starting to come out in my face it's like I'd rubbed it up against a concrete wall and the kids went, Mummy, what's wrong with <laughs> What you? happened? It's okay. <laughs> yeah, so. And then, because was it, has it always been the same, um, like you don't get, like you just get posted anywhere, like after the academy or? Well, that was another thing they... Um, brought in about the time of, you know, changing height and weight and females and children allowed, you could put down uh, your top three choices. And that's still the same now, yeah? Yeah. It doesn't guarantee that you'll get them, but they do consider it. And they also, because people are older when they join, they've got families and it could be that someone's partner is a teacher at a school or, you know, a nurse, a doctor, whatever, and have children... Excuse me. So they do look at it and quite honestly, it is the single males that'll get, you know, sent to Mount Isa, Thargaminda or, you know, somewhere with the promise that if they do two or three years, they'll be um, come back to a, a more preferred area. So I, um, I think it was because... I truly did try so hard to succeed and I got Marichidor. Yeah, nice. Everyone else hated me. What a posting. Yeah, so they said um, everyone else, teachers, pet, you know, all the rest of it, tongue in cheek. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, that was lovely. Yeah. That was good. So you were based in Brizzy and then did the family move up here? Uh, no, we... Um, well, I was only at Marichidor for a short while um, because you have 12 months training. Uh, you're a probationary constable. And then then I was at Caboolture, which was a very tough learning station, but a good one. You did a lot there. And I left there um, in 1992, I think, uh, and went for a stint in recruiting and then travelled all around... Queensland and interstate recruiting police from other police services who wanted to come up here. So that, that was really good. Um, 
I worked at the academy as a instructor myself and uh, Redcliffe Station and yeah, around the place until um, until 2002 and uh, then Bob Atkinson became the police commissioner and he had looked at the police, media and public affairs branch, which didn't have any police officers in it. They were all civilians, journalists, but no police. And he thought that was a bit imbalanced because he thought civilians and uh, police could give a better perspective of getting the news out, attending jobs and things like that. So um, he wanted three people there and Kim McComb, who comes here, and I were two of the female sergeants chosen. And... I stayed there for the next 10 years, um, eight of which were on the Daniel Morecambe case, because that happened while we were in that unit. Unreal. So how old were you when you started that? Um, so what, 2002, 19 years ago, so 50 around? It was like 19 years. Yeah. It yeah. was. Was it? It was. Yeah, wild. Yeah. And in all of the years before that, like being a general... So when did you become sergeant? Um, at the academy, yeah. yeah. So uh, up until then, general duties. So you're out in the street doing all the constable plod yeah. jobs. And did yes. you see anything or do anything or come across anything extraordinary in that time, like... Anything that you remember, like, you know, you remember your first days on those other, you know. Yeah. Um, look, a lot. Yeah. A lot, I think, that you put to the back of your mind. Yeah. Um, finding dead bodies who might have been in a car in summer for three months. Um, yeah, nothing unless, and I know there's some other police officers here at Contessa, Nothing can describe that, the the smell, the deterioration of the body, the, um, you know, the pain that someone's going to suffer um, because someone that they loved has done that. Uh, train accident where a guy lay on the train line, so there's bits of body left. Um, an old couple in a car... Uh, that veered into the path of a cement truck and got there and there's an arm on the road there and all these, you know, types of things. So When you're walking towards something like that and you see an arm lane in the middle of the road or whatever, does it feel like even real life? Like, does it feel like you're in a movie? Does it feel... And when you can smell, like, you know, smell things that you shouldn't smell yeah. as a human being, mm. like, does it feel real? It does when you're doing it. Yeah. Yes. And, and then... The amount, like, of trauma that would leave a, any human, like, how do you did you need time off directly after coming across that sort of stuff? Or no, you never did. You never admitted if you did anyway. And wow. I think the police and um, forces are all similar because to show any sign of uh, being fragile was not accepted. It it is m more accepted now, but then it was just. Okay, back to the station, um, have a few jokes, you know, the black humour, go home, strip off, um, throw your uniform in the bin, um, 
shower and have a drink and go back the next day. So therapy wasn't a thing back then? No. No one ever went and no. saw, a, no. saw anyone about it? But um, And there were funny things too and it was only a couple of weeks ago sitting outside having a coffee and Maddie um, from here um, in her job and we were talking about, I don't even know how this particular story came up but I said, um, I think Ness and Fiona were there, that one night we we had to go down to Deception Bay. We got a call that some bloke was lying on the footpath. Um, they're not sure if he'd been assaulted or raped because his pants were around his ankles. And so we we drive down there. I don't know, it was midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning or something like that, and we put the lights of the car on. We found him. And, yes, his pants were around his ankles. And Craig and I got out and we go around behind him and we both, we looked at each other and I said, oh, it's your job because you do, you did job for job. <laughs> and this guy... Had, paper rock. Okay, you're yeah. right. <laughs> this guy was so drunk and unconscious that he'd obviously stopped to have a squat and do a poo... <laughs> He's fallen over, unconscious, asleep, with the poo still hanging out of his bottom. Oh, stop it. Yep. And so Craig's, you know, begging me, please, can this be your job? No, it's your job. It's your job. So got gloves on and I said, I'm holding the top part of him. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I sort of lift him up. Craig's got the bottom end shaking him to get rid of the (laughs) the turd that's hanging out. Pulling his pants oh my up. Oh, God, I've never been that drunk. <laughs> no. I've never even peed my pants. No, that's insane. Oh, and so into the back of the uh, the car, back to the uh, watch house and sign him in. He didn't even wake up. You know, either. <laughs> and then apparently... Imagine waking up the next day and yeah. be like, what the fuck Why do I smell like shit? Oh, and he had no recollection whatsoever. <laughs> so when the watch house keeper said to him, well, this is how they found you and what happened, he was pretty um, embarrassed. But, yeah, that was funny. <laughs> Holy. Yeah. So, yeah, that was obviously funny times. Funny times, yeah. yes. And back then too, um, back when I was at Caboolture and the... My little boys were at Caboolture State School, which was only a block from the station. So if I was on a day shift, they would just walk down together and come into the kitchen there to wait for me to finish. And they loved seeing when someone got dragged through the day room in handcuffs or screaming and their little faces appearing out. And one time I had to pick them up and we got, I went in the police car from school and got them. And then we got a call for a job and they're in the back seat. And I'm going, just shut up. <laughs> Sit there. Shut up. Oh, what are we going to? They were so excited. That's awesome. I'll break every rule so in the book. Good. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. You can talk about it now. I can. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. That's gold. And yeah. then, okay, so there's lots that happen. And then when, so with the Daniel Morecambe, yep. like I was very young. I don't remember how old I was when all of that happened, but I remember it happening too. It was like it happened and then was it you straight on the case? The next day um, in the media unit we would get a fax about every job that happened in Queensland and then we would determine from that what the TV stations, the radio stations, the paper were sent out and they'd ring us and give us info. And we always had a lot of missing children and you got a bit blasé about it because you'd look at the photo of some kids and you'd think, they're just 
buggered off for a day or a night or something like that. But when Daniel's photo came through um, and I got that and, you know, there was just this gut feeling that this wasn't a normal missing child and so the next day the director of the media unit asked, I think because I was had a few years on me and I had children, um, for me to come up to Maroochydore because we were based in headquarters in Roma Street to uh, facilitate the first press conference because those first hours, first 48 hours are vital. And um, I walked into the Juvenile Aid Bureau room and there was Denise and Bruce and, um, and Denise's father, Kevin, and they just, with the door opening, and they just, like rabbits in headlots, hoping that someone was going to walk through the door and say, we've got some news. Yeah. And and I had to take a fairly firm stance with them because there was a lot of media interest for all those reasons. He was from a family that were together. He was a twin. He was 13. He'd been... He disappeared in daylight hours waiting for a bus. And so there was just a horde of media waiting to cover it. And I said to them, you know, this is the message we've got to get out... And from that very first day, Bruce said, I don't cry. I am like a statue. And I said, that's fine. Um, but you will say say this. And Denise was just completely in shock. She could... I don't think she spoke. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I was attached to it from that day. And attached to it, like, how much oh, work, like, how oh, often, like, how... how every, did it... every day for years, yeah. basically. And did you work... With the family. Yeah. yeah. Like... So I was the liaison, in effect, between the major incident room um, and the media, which was Australia-wide. Yeah. Yeah. And was it, like, a normal eight-hour shift? Like, yeah. Never. Just, no. just off to work, like... It, no. From that from that day on, your work completely changed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, probably only two or three days into um, the initial knowing about Daniel's disappearance, uh, Mr. Atkinson, who was the commissioner then, wanted to meet the family personally and the police minister, and I was out there for, for that meeting at their Palmwoods home and. Um, I admire Bob Atkinson enormously. He's one of the nicest men ever. And um, and he had a meeting and assured them that the police would do everything in their power to, you know, find Daniel. And when Mr Atkinson left, I walked out too. And he, he's such a gentleman. He came over to me and said, um, you have to take care of yourself because cases like this can destroy you. And he said it from experience because he was the officer that interviewed and broke the Sean Kingy case. He interviewed Belmay, Valmay Beck and Barry Watts that kidnapped and killed Sean Kingy wow. at Noosa. So yeah. he knew, you know, the toll it can take. Um, so, yeah, they were big years and Australian story, did um, three stories about it with us police that were involved and um, there, there was, you know, a lot going on and probably information in the thousands of tips that were clairvoyance and... Oh, fuck. 
Oh, that would be infuriating. And um, people just wanting to brag that they'd done it and that was horrendous. Wow. So people were tipping that they had done it? Yeah. When it had no- nothing? No. no. Why would they? Like, what, what was... Some people are just so mentally unstable and vicious. But you'd have to investigate they everything. Did. Yeah. Yeah. There was one who said he'd put him in a barrel and put him in the Brisbane River um, out near Pinkham Bar and, um, and he, he was brought out of jail for that interview and, and Bruce insisted on being in the room and wow. Denise and, um, and to hear those things it was horrendous and he was telling but it was all a lie when did you find out it was a lie like oh after the police investigated tides and his movements because he wasn't in jail when he said he did it and um so it was you know probably weeks what a waste of resources oh yeah how frustrating yeah what kind of um toll did that case take on you over the years oh a lot Yeah. yeah i didn't acknowledge that until um probably when I left the service, I think. Um, I think the difference being if I was an investigator in the major incident room, you were working on any leads um, and things as such, but pretty well every day I was with the family. So that became tremendously... Um, I felt so responsible, and yet I, I shouldn't have, but I did. I, you know, I wanted to do something that was going to bring them some relief and probably it got to a point where um, and Denise I took her on treks to try and break the immersion in it all and I was probably one of the few people that could say to her and did say to her wanting to help you have two children that are living yeah and they're important and they're suffering and she'd get the shits with me but we're still friends to this day (laughs) Yeah. Tough love. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, let's talk about those tracks though, because you've done a lot of fitness, fitnessing in the out, outdoors. I love trekking. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to, you know, get back and do another one. Um, and I probably didn't start doing that until, until I was fifty, and it was around the the Daniel time. So when I look back now, I think I was trying to look after me mm. um, and I um, going just stepping back um, because the first trek I did was Kokoda and in 1998, my, my brother, um, very interested in war history and our granddad had fought at Gallipoli and the Western Front and survived and came home and lived oh, to in his wow. 80s. So... My brother um, said to me six months that in that year, which was six months after Dennis, my husband, took his own life, he said, um, you and the boys come on this trip to the Western Front with us for a change of scenery and for the boys to have um, something to look forward to. How old were the boys then? 14 and 16. So it was a really tough time I imagine. for them. And um, so we went and, and had a fabulous six weeks overseas. And, and uh, I think for the boys to be around my brother's group, and they were in a pipe band, you know, they played the bagpipes bag and all this, and, the, and we'd go to ceremonies at um, 
all the major cemeteries on the Western Front and my kids could, would see these grown men cry and, and they learnt to express their own emotion which they'd held back about their dad because they couldn't understand why he did what he did. Um, so my brother said, let's on that trip, let's do a Kokoda trick. So that was the, the first one and, I, and my brother and I and another policewoman friend did that one. Didn't train for it, let's do it. Did you oh, train, train! Oh, you did train! Oh, you're yeah, scared shitless. Oh, good. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yes. Or is it as bad? Like as hard as you thought it would be? Harder. It was worse. Yeah. 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 And then you went back and did it how many times? Four. Yeah. Well, I didn't complete the fourth yeah. one. That's when I fell and broke my ankle. Snapped so, it. Snapped it. Snapped it through. So you know. <laughs> Got out of that one. Got out of that one. But Paula Lake from here, who was on that trick with me, was my lifesaver and um, probably saved my foot yeah. on that one. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. I loved the history behind the Kokoda treks and I, I liked the personal challenge as well. Um, I've trekked uh, the Overlander in Tasmania. That was one I took Denise on mm-hmm. and um, the Milford Sound in New Zealand. Beautiful, I, took De- I can't wait to do that. Oh, it's stunning. Yeah. Took Denise on that one. And Wendy from here, who was on my second Kokoda trip. Yeah. So that's where we met and became friends and I, I just love her. She's so gutsy, that woman. Well, okay, just quickly on Wendog. Yes. I can't believe she's done Kokoda. Yeah. She comes in and she's scared of a one-mile run. She <laughs> And she did Kokoda. Is- Backbone of steel. <laughs> Third day on that trek, her knee had just given up on her. And the, the second, third and fourth days are the hardest. They go up and up and up and up and up forever. You might only get two Ks in the eight hours. Jeez. It's horrendous. And so her knee was gone. She was vomiting, projectile vomiting on the way up as well. What, what from? Just pain. <laughs> Just like the actual exertion. Like she didn't, and that, yeah. she didn't have, she wasn't sick. Like, <laughs> And um, never complained. What? Just This is bullshit. I want a refund <laughs> nah. on the Wendy we got. This is. <laughs> she was, you watch out, Wendog. Oh, you're in trouble. Yeah. We only found out recently she can actually squat to depth. <laughs> she can. Yeah. When she's drunk. When she's drunk. So we make her do it now. Yep. Yeah. Good. I just think she's naughty for us. That's all. There you go. Yeah, so – and she was on that trek because um, they were raffling for Give Me Five for Kids uh, a, a spot on this particular Kokoda trek. So Tim thought he was, you know, wonderful husband and he <laughs> bid and Wendy comes home and he's going, you're going on the Kokoda trek. <laughs> and um, and so I, I was going on that one and I was rung and said to meet Wendy and – do a bit of training with her beforehand and so that's how we met and then um and Tim did the same thing the following year forgive me five for kids because there was a a trek in Borneo the Sandark and Death March and he did that again for Wendy and um so Wendy and I went on that one together too and uh, she was just the best trekking partner she would be pretty fun I reckon she would make things pretty pretty fun Oh, she was like, no. No, <laughs> I think she was just so supportive and reliable. Okay. She, yeah. Um, That's excellent. Who, who is this Wendy? <laughs> the Sandarkan trek was actually harder than the Kokoda one because of the heat was extreme. That's on um, 
Mount Kinabalu at the end. There. Oh, uh, That's yeah. On mine and my dad's bucket list to do oh. together. Well, get on it, girl. Yeah. At the end of the, the six days in this horrendous heat in Borneo in the jungle, although the, the background of that is just gut wrenching and I felt embarrassed that I didn't know the history of that, which is when 2,600. British and Australian prisoners of war were marched by the Japanese. They were already ill. They'd been in a prison camp in Sendakan and marched 250 miles to renew. Six survived because they'd just died of exhaustion from um, dysentery. The Japanese would shoot them if they couldn't keep walking. Um, so six survived and to have an understanding of, of that war history... Um, we, we just broke down, Wendy and I. And when that was finished, we then the next day climbed Mount Kinabalu, which is just over 4,000 metres in freezing cold. Jesus. <laughs> and, um, and you both would have been over 50. Yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. So no, the treks are good for your mind and your body and to think about things and just have that time without a phone and mm. I, I think they're cathartic i've done another one in new zealand the queen charlotte across the marlborough sound that was five star you got champagne every night oh <laughs> still hard going yeah. um but yeah so and i had wanted to do and hope that will happen the camino across spain when covid's over yeah yeah i might come with you on the camino actually. oh i think you'd love it yeah. too yeah so good and now you're doing crossfit Yes. How'd you end up here? Um, through going to another gym and I met Fiona Rogers there and uh, when, and then and then that shut down as all gyms did when COVID hit and then we were doing catching up maybe one walk a week and she'd come along here because obviously she knew you. Mm. And she just never shut up about it. Like it was just <laughs> on and on. Hello, what Fiona. Is this cult? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, at the end of that year, Paula and Fiona and I, they came and had um, a Christmas drink at my place. And just th- one drink, one Christmas drink. It wasn't much. <laughs> well, they had to drive. I probably kept going when they left. And Fiona, you know, she looked great and, and looked healthy and. She was talking about it. And Paul is extremely fit anyway, being a physiotherapist and a runner and a bike rider and all the rest of it. And so we both said, oh, we'll, we'll have a look in the new year. And, um, and yeah, so here we, are. here we are. Yeah. 12 months on. 12 months on. Do, did you think you were too old oh, before you started? Definitely. I think I had what a lot of people have in their mind about CrossFit is that it's for like you ladies, you know, young and extremely fit that was my mindset because I hadn't really looked into it and I thought oh nearly turned around when I drove here to have that first mm-hmm. meeting with you and then I walked in and someone was on that um, bar near where the roller door is <laughs> swinging their legs up like circus soleil and I thought I'm out of here like I would have laughed if you just turned around yeah. the driveway and walked out. Oh, yeah. So, and and I think even with the gradual PTs with mm. you to start and then in Jay's, um, what was Rookie's called to start with? Booty Camp. Booty Camp. Um, I was terrified, 
absolutely terrified. You were scared every class. I remember that now. Yeah, I was. And the thought of coming into this big room just... I'd get sick. After everything you've been through in your life, I can't believe this I was know. the thing that scared you. It did. And and that was a lot of unscrambling in my mind about my age and coming in with, you know, a lot of healed injuries but that give me a, a bit of um, curry mm. most days. So, um, uh, but I love it. Love it. Love it. So good. Do you still get nervous now? No. I don't. I think what has happened is the realisation that, and I feel sorry for all the coaches, if it's not my ankle, my knee, my <laughs> shoulder, my rib, my back, um, something going skew with that, there's always something that I'm given. And the speed with which the coaches are able to go, right, you do that, that and that, which is, um, it doesn't aggravate whatever the problem is on the day and I come come away thinking I've had a really good workout and a lot of fun and like everyone says this is a great group of women sensational Mm. when I compare it and I've been to a few gyms over the years nothing like it it's wonderful so yeah congratulations to you both and all the coaches thanks yeah it's pretty special this place yeah what would you say to anyone who was scared that they weren't fit enough or too old or not ready to start CrossFit what would you say to them well now 12 months on I'd say you are okay and a big part of that is you both and the other coaches have not uh, made me feel old you've worked around that and I think that's a big thing too because you've you've got a nucleus of really you know younger fit wonderful women but you've incorporated, and there's a few of us now with a few decades on us, who uh, you you make us feel very welcome and push us and getting us fitter. And I'd say to anyone that come in and just, you know, participate in, I think, the gradual move in. You wouldn't take someone straight into the big room, as I call it. The big room. <laughs> the big room. Like a, um, with the big girls. With the big girls. girls. Kindy, they have a little room, the different yeah. rooms. The red room, yeah, the yellow yeah. room, the blue room. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And I think that's something that we do very well here yes. is we um, we get people started the, the right way, which is a slow way. Yes. And, um, you know, whether it's one-on-one training or the rookies classes yeah. or – and we're lucky enough to have a team and a space big enough to be able to yes. do all of that. Yes. So we're very lucky. And I love I – love um this i guess the last 12 months we've gotten a lot of the older girls and i love it hey like look so good everyone is everyone is so respectful of each other no matter that's what i love about this place is like it doesn't matter what you do outside it doesn't matter who you are everyone's equal and respectful of each other on the inside and i think that's really beautiful it's fantastic and supportive yeah well kim joined after we were walking and she was going to mckenzie gym and she said, I think I'll have to give it a go. And I knew her competitive spirit, you know, that... She's she, so competitive. Is when she? I have her and John, they do a couple's PT. Yeah. She's like, hurry up. Yeah. We're going to get time capped. Go faster. <laughs> so funny. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's great. She loves it too. So, and, and another thing, if someone older said to me, you know, what do you do and how do you do it... Um, I think I'd say to them too that once you're doing it, you don't really see anyone else. Yeah, that's right. 
If you're doing it right, that's how you should be feeling. And as I've said, I'm just concentrating on breathing and staying alive till the end of the session. So I just... (laughs) And I I do remember... um, in the beginning to the music, which, look, I have to say I hate it. I just hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't hear what anyone's saying. I'm trying to lip read. And then, but once you start the actual session, I don't even hear it. I truly don't even hear it. And I thought that was so funny. And Someone over, (laughs) what, 40, 45 told me off the other day. She's like, can you change this bloody song? I was like, I'm very sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Someone said yesterday, oh, that's a good one to end on. And I thought, what shit is that <laughs> song, you know? Who are they? Look, I, I will happily change most things, but the music no, is not what I, I, I get it, I we get it. Not and I'm never music. going to mention that I'm hot again. I listened to the podcast about the fair and I thought, don't mention the war. I we feel just- like... <laughs> I feel like the old girls and the pregnant ladies should have real estate under the fan. That's 100%. just my thought. You just shoulder them out of the way, Just man. shoulder oh, them out of the way. Oh, no, I like being in the back corner. I was going to say they would, they would like the back, though. That's the difference. Hey, before we wrap this up, what about um, goals for the future? Like whether it's life, fitness, whatever. What are you, what are you planning on doing? Because you're retired now, right? Yes. Yep. yep. I was a marriage celebrant and funeral oh, celebrant. Oh, we about that. You've done oh, so, many things. Yeah. so many things. So um, So did you do that after policing? Yeah. Celebrant. Yeah. Yep. And then I stopped being a marriage celebrant because, oh, I don't know. It's the brides, wasn't it? I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's okay. Times, you can say it. Yeah, okay. At times. Yeah. Um, but I think my personality and the experience I had I was better suited to conducting a funeral and I had been to some funerals and I thought these are the most horrible farewells I've ever been to. Really? And I I loved doing the funerals because of... I could go into a home where grief was very evident when someone's just died and it was like an interview really, you know, nearly from policing, I could conduct that interview, get the information I needed, offer them ideas um, and hold my own at the mic, delivering the service and all that. And I got terrific personal satisfaction if a family member said that's how whoever the person we just said farewell to, they would have loved that or they would have loved you. Um, so that was yeah, very rewarding. But, yes, I've retired and... Hang on, wait, before you go into yep. that... Through everything you've been through, like we talked the early days mm. of um, police and you didn't show weakness, through the Daniel Morecambe stuff, everything else afterwards and before, did you ever seek therapy? I did once, yeah. You went to one session? Oh, no. I I was made to go just before I retired. I was really unwell. Yeah. And I, can, oh, I can only imagine yeah. like the stuff you would have been through. So, and... and I um, was in the waiting room of a psychologist with my arms folded, <laughs> glaring at her. And um, I said, I don't want to be here. I'm just thinking, I don't know if you guys have watched The Sopranos before, but it's like all about Tony Soprano, who's like the yeah. Italian mafia, yes, and he yeah. goes to a psychologist, so, and yes, that's how that's they tell the, the story. Yeah. Yeah. And he just, he fucking hates every session. He's like, I don't need you. I don't yeah. need to be here. How long did it take for her to break you down? <laughs> Um, probably the second session and, uh, and, and, and then I think that opened the floodgates to my mother leaving, finding my husband dead when he took his own life 
jobs in the police. You know, there was a whole basket full of stuff. So it would have got worse before it got better, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that was good. And she became a good friend. She was at Daryl and my wedding because I remarried 11 years ago. And and it was healthy to be with someone that you weren't close to, that, you, you know, that I could scream about things, cry and walk out. And it was confidential. So, yeah, yeah that was that was helpful. And, um, yeah, so the funerals were were a big part of my life and I still would do them if someone I know came to me and said, look, you know, mum's died or dad's died or, um, you know, anyone, um, if they were close to me. Would you go to, like, when you're doing funeral, funerals and you interview someone that day and, or interview the family yep. and they're like, there's so much grief. Yes. And so, I guess the same, same question for when you're policing and you leave and you go home and you go into sleep that night. Can you can you turn that shit off? No, here? you could you no, couldn't no. even with the funerals and everything. You just be going well, over it in your head. Yeah. yeah, if a funeral was for someone, I would class it eighty and over. I would think, well, they've they've lived. Yeah, they've had a life. They've made choices, good, bad, or whatever. But when I was doing the funerals um, for Gregson and Wait, I tended to get the babies, oh. the little little children. The suicides, because I think they thought because, you know, my husband had suicided, um, I understood. And I do. I do. I could talk to a family and say that was their decision, mm. but you have to live with it for the rest of your life. And this is perhaps how you can cope with that. And when I would get asked to do a funeral for someone in their 90s, I'd jump for joy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They had a great this life. This is a celebration. It's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So, plans for the future. Uh, I'm busy with grandkids. How many do you have? Thirteen. There's so many. I remember too many. Remember she sat down and said that. Yeah. So, excuse yeah. me. How many? I remember all of them. Yeah. <laughs> do you know the names? <laughs> um, I didn't this week because I had Emmy, <laughs> Hayden, and Heath, and I kept saying to Heath, who's nine, Hayden. And he'd look at me because Hayden's three, you know, so that was an insult. Um, so it's nice to help out yeah. when, you know, the mum and dad are working hard and it's holidays and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, I'd love to do another trek where and when I don't know. So, um, yeah, and just keep coming here and um, I, I don't say I want to be happy. I think that's not a state of mind that's achievable Every day. It's not. It's ridiculous. Life isn't like that. So if I'm content um, and feeling, uh, you know, energetic, which I do a lot more since being here because I'm such a yo-yo eater. Oh, I'm not a yo-yo drinker because I just drink all the time, you know. So (laughs) (laughs) There's no yo-yo about that. (laughs) No no yo-yo about that. (laughs) Um, So, look, it's – yeah, there's nothing – big out there but just yeah get the next few years seeing the grandkids um you know grow through their phases and 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 the adult children are all pretty good and settled so that's how many kids do you have we've got six between us yes yeah and they're all um yeah they're all pretty happy and you know successful in in their own right with what they've chosen to do so yeah good that's excellent that's good. Any so other good. questions? 
Only one more, I think. Of all, what's like the biggest life lesson you've taken from all of the things that you've been through? Like, what's that's a big question? Big question. It might take us half an hour again to answer, but of all the stuff that's happened to you in your life, what's it taught you? So you want it? Want her to answer like her biggest life lesson, or something she could pass on, or a bit of both? Maybe a little bit of both. To reach out if you do need someone, which I didn't for mm. a long time in a professional sense, but to know who your good friends are and trust them and they'll be there, they'll listen to you at the end of the phone and get you through a particularly a bad spot um, and, and yeah, be resilient um, and think back that, yeah, this has happened to me, but look at that story I saw on the news last night where someone's little girl died or they've lost something and, and try and not compare um, tragedies at, at all but to think that people are confronted with things that they don't choose to and you have a choice where to go with it. You can bury your head, throw yourself off a cliff or you can take baby steps until you make big ones. So I, th- I think I'm pretty resilient now. And roll with the punches a bit. Definitely. But I enjoy life. I love it. That's awesome. That's so good. Um, That's one of my favourite things you said was it's not not achievable to be happy every day. So true. And so many people are aiming aiming for that. I think... um, Doom for failure. Yeah, 100%. I think social media, like you didn't get to grow up with it, which is excellent. Um, I think it has so much wrong with why people have that like pursuit of constant happiness like yes. that's all they see on that yep. shit yeah so perfect bodies yep. clothes it's, everything yeah. like and that it's false fucking it's, insta families like there's yes. these beautiful families like even the youtube families now oh, they make the, me so mad there's yeah. like this beautiful husband and wife and they've got these perfect children and they're always happy and they live in this amazing house and they like do reviews on products or whatever oh. and people are aiming for this and it's it's not real. It's not. It's not a real world yeah. at all. And it's not attainable. Like it's not something that we should be chasing. And no. I got off social media at the same time you did a couple of years ago. Okay. And I've tried to go back a couple of times and I end up doing that. So yes. I have to I just have to stay away, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. You'll be off it forever, I reckon. Yeah. 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 I keep trying to like make it go like, no, it just makes me sad. It's overwhelming, yeah, I think. And is. the expectations of people to achieve those um, dreamlike states it's just doomed for failure and to um, for people to think is there something wrong with me because I can't be like that and I can't have that and when when it was first like a big sort of thing there was oh I don't know maybe uh, like five six years uh, four or five years ago I reckon um, I my following on Instagram started growing and there was this lady who contacted me and she was like I can help you you know, get to a mm-hmm. point of being able to, you know, monetize your social media. I was like, great. And then I started going to all these meetings with the big influencers mm-hmm. that had hundreds of thousands and a couple had a million people following them. They are so fucking miserable. Yeah. <laughs> these people that look up, like that people look up to and they've got this perfect life, they are so insecure. They are True. so miserable. Like they, True. they are just people. And that's why, you know how people get obsessed with famous people as well? Mm-hmm. I'm like, they're just people. Yes. They're just trying to do their best as well. Yep. 
And they're just like, you know, it's not real, like what they portray. And they even say that. A lot of them say it in their own thing, like, this is my highlight reel or whatever. But people just get it stuck in their head that it's something that they must... Must have, yeah. I I think my generation, we're lucky not to grow up with anything like that. Yeah. You know, we had a black and white TV. Yeah, so jealous. And... <laughs> And, yeah, and didn't yeah. have a phone. Yeah, it was, it was pretty basic. Yeah, it, I think I mentioned earlier. I didn't realise how little we had till later, but it wasn't bad. Oh, it would have been great. Yeah. Like you and just didn't time waste. No, like, just outside. Yeah, playing all in mud. the time. Yeah, yeah. and you were so, gone for hours all of an that, evening. Yep. Yeah. So it was pretty carefree. Yeah. And yeah, bad things probably happened back then too. But they just swept we, it under the rug. Yeah. Didn't have to hear about it. Yeah. All the yeah. Time. Mm, yeah, so isn't that popular? Um, question, question, funny I'm, question. I'm just going to re-ask this morning's question so everyone can hear it all together. Oh well, story behind it: this gross human being that's sitting next to me, not Julie, Candace. <laughs> Julie's definitely on your team. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I reckon she would be. Or is she? She is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this gross human being messages me yesterday afternoon that she really wanted cereal, but the milk was two days old. <laughs> in the fridge and she smelt it and it's fine so if she's dead then you know we know why and i said you're a fucking monster you're disgusting you you disgust me yeah yep so then yeah both agree question of the day today was what's your cutoff for dairy products in the fridge will you eat it until the day will you throw it out the day before will you continue eating it if it still smells good after the date like I, I don't have dairy myself, but if it's for my child, mm. um, I will. I won't even sniff it if it's like the day before it's gone. Then yeah, right. yeah. I will not push any boundaries <laughs> ever with that stuff. What about you, Julie? Oh, it's got to go if it's the used by date. If I was in your situation and really what wanted, what if you were fanging for a bowl of cereal though? <laughs> yeah, I'd have water. <laughs> Water in the cereal. I would have just. I love dry cereal. So, I would have just eaten it dry. No, I would would never tempt fate with use by date. Just <laughs> like water mixes yeah, up some so gross things. concoction. That's yeah, excellent. it'd be pretty gross too. But yeah, yeah I could not put an out of date yeah. dairy product. Did you find in the early morning classes most people were like you or me, or was it half and half? You mostly most ah uh, probably you and then the other portion was like i'd sniff it and then i'd decide there, there was, was a lot, lot of sniffers, sniffers. yeah in, yes. in the classes i took there was a lot of yeah. sniffers yeah you're disgusting <laughs> and cream as well i'm the same if oh, it still dude. smells okay we're good to go well this is actually a very relevant question to okay. that last question what is the strangest thing in your refrigerator candace says it's two-day-old milk but oh there's so much off food in my fridge all the time <laughs> I'm terrible. terrible. Really? What's yeah. the strangest thing in your fridges? Tell me. Oh, it's not strange. Julie told me this actually. When your fridge gets a weird stink because there's all food in it, you put a bowl of bicarb soda. Does that work? And it like soaks it up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Bicarb soda is like, it's like. Fixes everything. Fixes everything. 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 Yeah. Wow. And when you put vinegar in bicarb soda and um, pour hot water over it in the sink your sink is so clean and it's like a drano and yeah. wow yep there you go. she knows things mm-hmm. 
I have nothing weird in my fridge. Nothing's weird? No. How often do you clean it out? Very regularly. Mm, I'm impressed. <laughs> More than me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Candace knows I'm, I'm very um, rigid and anal very. Like about it. that. And um, Have you yeah. always been that way with the refrigerator? Oh, I think so, yeah. Because I think um, when I took over as a little girl doing the housework for Dad, because um, I, I was very proud of myself so that he didn't have to do anything. I think that started back then that I'd have everything neat and tidy and shiny and, um, yeah, fridge clean and, yeah. I'm, I'm happy. I am satisfied when I have mm. a good clean fridge with yeah. no use-by-date yeah, stuff, yeah, Candice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you should try it sometime. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I endeavour to. The only reason she has a clean house is because she has someone cleaning for us. <laughs> this is also true. <laughs> Sorry, Lou. <laughs> The only reason the gym is clean is because we clean up after her. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, so you should see it when I finish trading. There's shit every shirt know. over here, shoes over here, yeah. socks over I there. I was stunned listening to last week's yeah. podcast about Miss Untidy. You all know I who just, I am now. Mm. Everyone will see a coffee cup and they won't even look at me anymore. No. <laughs> it's me. I just love that they were surprised about you, but no one mentioned surprised about me. Like everyone didn't think. Like what does everyone think I'm messy? Like whatever. Um, Weirdest thing in my fridge. Trying to think of what's in the door. It's always got to be in the door, yeah, don't you reckon? Yeah, all the weird sauces and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. sauces can be a bit, mm. bit tricky. Oh, maybe um, like an aloe vera cream. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bit weird. Of, bit of sunburn. Yeah, a bit of sunburn yeah. cream. Yeah. 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 That's pretty strange. Yeah. I'll go with that. Very good. All right. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks, How long Julie. did we talk to talk for? Ooh, hour and 12. Wow. Goes no, fast, doesn't it? It does. Thanks. To you both, it was yeah. um, it was lovely. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Thanks yeah, for coming. It was great. Thanks so much. Have a great Friday, everyone, or whatever day it is. Friday. Yep. Bye. 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 <laughs>